A marriage counselor once hung a sign on the outside of his door that read, If you're having conflict, come in and I'll help you. If you're not having conflict, come in and tell me how in the world you do it. (laughs) As the wise teacher once said, wherever two or three are gathered together, there is conflict. Conflict is a very real issue, whether it's at home or at work or at school or at church or wherever we have relationships with people, which, by the way, is everywhere. We deal with conflict in every facet of our lives. Well, this morning, as we continue to work our way verse by verse through the book of James, we come to this section in James 4, verses 1 through 12, and the question, how do I resolve conflict? Follow along in the Bible as I read today's text. James chapter 4, we pick it up with verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? How do I resolve conflict? Well, following James' usual head-on, straight-to-the-point style. Let's take a closer look at what he has to say in these verses about the cause of and the cure for conflict. And by the way, as we're working our way through these 12 verses this morning, I'd like to ask you to think about somebody in your life right now with whom you are experiencing conflict. Someone with whom you are having trouble getting along. Uh, A person with whom you have some unresolved issues. A relative, friend, neighbor, work associate. Some other relationship that's difficult. Can you think of someone? Hmm. Okay, keep him or her in mind. As we take a look at the cause of conflict. Notice that James begins chapter 4 with a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he answers his own question. Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? Living Bible paraphrases it. Isn't it because there's a whole army of evil desires within you? In other words, there's a a war of desires going on inside each and every one of us. 
And when my desires are at battle with your desires, guess what? <laughs> We're going to have conflict with each other. In fact, I can almost guarantee that in many homes, there will be some conflict after church today due to desires. I mean, the husband, the dad, is going to go home and he wants to veg out. He's going to kick back in his recliner, turn on the television to watch some NASCAR or basketball, and snap his fingers and say, would you bring me something to eat and drink? Now the wife, the mom, has another whole set of desires. <laughs> she wants to go out to eat someplace because she doesn't want to cook dinner. And then afterwards she wants to sneak into the bedroom to curl up for a nice Sunday afternoon nap. <laughs> then again, the kids, the grandkids, they have a whole nother set of desires. They want to invite some friends over to play video games or run around the house making a bunch of noise. Now, tell me, what's going to happen in this home <laughs> this afternoon? <laughs> There's going to be some conflict because there are conflicting desires. Well, what desires specifically cause Conflict. James seems to identify three of them here in today's text. Number one is the desire for possessions. The desire for possessions, things, stuff, <laughs> gadgets. Look again at the first part of verse 2. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and Fight. James is talking here about the desire for possessions. When we love things and long for them and lust after them, it's only going to lead to conflict. Our covetousness and greed leads us to envy and to have jealousy toward others, which ultimately leads to fights and quarrels. An example? A recent Gallup poll tells us that 56% of all divorces today are, guess what, over money-related issues. The desire for things. And we live in a money-hungry society. Somebody said that Americans today believe in life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness. <laughs> we think the credit card or the almighty dollar is going to buy us satisfaction and fulfillment. So we spend our lives trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to stay one step ahead of our neighbors with regard to the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the gadgets we use. And when we finally arrive, we only find out the Joneses have moved. <laughs> And then we panic and we frantically drive in, dive in right to that trap all over again. We bought into the consumer mentality that says that happiness is something that can be purchased. That possessions, things are the answer. And nothing could be further from the truth. Notice that James concludes verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. Well, of course we don't ask God. We know that the things that are on our ask list aren't on God's give list. Sometimes the things we desire are not at all what God desires for us. They're not at the center of His will. The bottom line is this. True happiness does not come from the things we possess. True happiness only comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're striving for satisfaction and fulfillment in life by things, stuff, you're going to be sorely disappointed. So the first thing that causes conflict is the desire for possessions. Number two is the desire for pleasure. The desire for 
pleasure. Notice what James writes next in verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now please understand, James is not saying here that we should have no pleasure in life. I mean, on the contrary. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. I mean, God's not a cosmic killjoy. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to experience pleasure. I mean, if anybody ought to get a kick out of life, it's those of us who follow Christ. God wants us to have fun. He didn't put us on this earth to be miserable. However, James is saying that when pleasure becomes our sole aim, our main focus in life becomes our own personal gratification, it's only going to lead to conflict. When we are consumed with the pursuit of pleasure, conflict will be the result. Why? Because our pleasure and our indulgence becomes more important than everybody else's pleasure, and we will pursue that pleasure at all costs, even at the expense of others. We're indeed a pleasure-driven society. If it feels good, what? Do it, yeah. We live for the weekend. I mean, in our culture, it's all about Friday. We endure the work week so that we can get to the weekend. TGIF, thank goodness it's Friday. Recreation and pleasure are such high priorities in our lives. We should heed the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In fact, let's read these verses out loud together. Would you read them with me? I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is, but I found this is useless too. I discovered that laughter is foolish, that pleasure does you no good. Anything I wanted, I got. I did not deny myself any pleasure, and I realized it didn't mean a thing. It was like chasing the wind of no use at all. Hmm. By the way, when Solomon says here he didn't deny himself any pleasure, he means exactly that. I mean, as the richest and the most influential person to ever live, Ecclesiastes 2 tells us that he tried everything from A to Z. He pursued pleasure with all the gusto that he had, sparing no time, no money, no effort, no energy. And at the end of his life, as he writes this book of Ecclesiastes, he looks back over it all and he concludes it didn't mean a thing. It was like chasing the wind of no use at all. The point is, when we're pursuing our pleasures and others are pursuing their pleasures, <laughs> there's bound to be a head-on collision somewhere. <laughs> and so the second thing that causes conflict is the desire for pleasure. Number three is the desire for position. The desire for position. And we're talking here about pride, the longing for power and prestige. We, we want to be number one you see, above and before other people. It's only going to lead to fights and quarrels when we have that attitude. There can only be one king of the hill. Notice that this jockeying for position leads to conflict on two fronts. First of all, with God. I mean, that's what James talks about in verses 4 through 6. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives more grace. That's why Scripture said God opposes the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. Now folks, there can only be one God sitting on the throne of our lives. Either it's going to be the one true God or it's going to be the God of this world. And these verses tell us that God is a jealous God, that He put the Spirit in us that jealously desires for Him to be the God that is sitting on the throne in our lives. And this is an issue, by the way, upon which we cannot straddle the fence. And yet we sure try to. We cannot serve ourselves and serve God at one and the same time. That's the term double-minded, by the way, that James uses in verse 8. And back in chapter 1 in verse 8, you might remember he used it as well. We cannot be double-minded. We cannot serve two masters simultaneously. And when we try to do this, when we want to be in control of our own lives instead of yielding control to God, it's going to lead to conflict in our relationship with Him. But second, there's also the desire for position in our relationships with others. And James talks about this down in verses 11 and 12, by the way, where he says, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor. In a nutshell, James is warning us once again about judging other people, about fault-finding, nitpicking, being critical, slandering. (laughs) And why do we judge others, by the way? It's really pretty simple, because we want to be number one. Somehow we bought into the lie that if we tear somebody else down, that builds us up. (laughs) That doesn't even make sense. You ever thought about that? Have you ever known anybody who's built their own house by tearing down their neighbors? (laughs) Doesn't work that way. And yet we attempt this all the time in our relationships with others. We slander, we judge, we criticize, we find fault, we're quick to point out other people's mistakes, thinking that if somehow we can tear them down a little bit, it builds us up. All because we want to be number one. Look at what it says. Proverbs 26, verse 22. Gossip is so tasty... (laughs) How we love to swallow it. Isn't that true? Tasty little bit of gossip comes along about somebody and we swallow it. Then we're quick to pass it on to somebody else. All because we think that in making somebody else look a little bad, we've made ourselves look good. So the third cause of conflict with God and with others is the desire for position. What causes quarrels and fights among you, James asks? And he answers, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And then he goes on to identify three of these desires. The desire for possessions, the desire for pleasure, and the desire for position. Here's the bottom line. Write it down in your notes. There's a blank there to fill in. Conflict is caused by selfishness. That's the bottom line here. To sum it all up, Conflict is caused by selfishness. Which leads us to our second main point today, and that's the cure for conflict. So how do we resolve conflict with other people? Well, it seems to me that James suggests that the prescription for resolving conflict involves at least these four ingredients in verses 7 through 10. Number one, we need to resign ourselves to God. 
It begins by resigning ourselves to God. Verse 7 begins, Submit yourselves then to God. That word submit means to surrender, to yield control, to resign. And so again, we must ask ourselves that question, who is in control of my life? Is it me or is it God? Because until we resign our rights, until we give up demanding our own way, until we yield the control of the agenda of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's really not much hope for us resolving conflict. Over the years, I've done a lot of counseling. A lot of conflict resolution with married couples, friends, co-workers, family members, many other kinds of relationships. And I would have to say that almost without fail... Every time we get to the heart of the conflict, it centers around both parties demanding their own rights. Wanting their own way. Being unwilling to give up their own agenda. And I've had to hammer away with Scripture after Scripture about submission and surrender until finally I've actually had people throw up their arms and disgust and say, okay, I can't take any more of this. And I'll say... Good, because <laughs> that's exactly where God wants you to be. Until we realize that we need to resign ourselves to God, that we need to submit and yield control of the situation to Him, we cannot even begin the process of conflict resolution because God is really the only one who can resolve conflict. In the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 reminds us, love does not demand its own way. And until we stop demanding our own way with others and yield control of our lives to the leadership of Jesus Christ, we are going to experience one conflict after another after another. We've got to let it go. Paul put it this way, Philippians 2, verses 3-5. through In fact, let's read these verses out loud together. Would you read them with me? Don't push your way to the front. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Think of yourself the way Christ Jesus thought of Himself. The NIV translates that last phrase. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So how? How can we have that same self-sacrificing attitude that Jesus had where He was willing to lay aside His own rights and privileges even to the point that He was obedient on the cross to die for you and for me? How do we do that? By resigning ourselves to God. By yielding and surrendering and allowing Jesus to live His life in us and through us. Now, don't miss this. If I am allowing Jesus to live in and through me, and you are allowing Jesus to live in and through you, guess what? We won't have any conflict. Why? Because Jesus is not about to fight and quarrel with Jesus. Does that make sense? So the first ingredient in the prescription to cure conflict is to resign ourselves to God. Number two, we need to ready ourselves against Satan. This is a battle. And we need to ready ourselves against the enemy. Satan. Verse 7 continues, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This word resist implies that there's got to be some readiness, some preparation on our part. Now please understand, Satan 
wants to cause conflict in our relationships with God, with our spouse, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our fellow workers, with our other church members, and so on. I mean, the devil loves to sow seeds of discord and division and disagreement among us. Satan gets a kick out of it when you and I are bickering and squabbling. And so we need to be ready to resist him. We have got to be prepared for his schemes. That's exactly what Paul told us, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, we are not unaware of his schemes. So what are his schemes? How how does Satan cause conflict in our relationships? He does so by attacking our weak points, doesn't he? He does so by going after those desires that we are wrestling with in our lives, the desires we just talked about a moment ago, the desire for possessions, the desire for pleasure, the desire for position. I mean, believe me, Satan knows where you and I are weak. And he exploits those evil desires. That's why we need to ready ourselves against Satan. We need to be aware of our own weak spots and Satan's schemes so that we can be prepared to resist him. I guess the question then is, how? How do we ready ourselves against Satan? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that question is much longer than we have the time to cover in today's lesson. Why? Because the answer is all about spiritual warfare. Simply put, if we're going to ready ourselves against Satan and his schemes, we must recognize that this requires us to be fully equipped and trained soldiers engaged in daily battle against the enemy. And that's a topic that demands a little more time and attention than we're able to give it this morning. But let me, for today's purpose, simply direct you to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. I love the way the message puts this. It says, God is strong. He wants you strong. So take everything the Master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in the next couple hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get every weapon God has issued so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Dress yourself for battle with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. And God's Word, the sword, is an indispensable weapon. In the same way prayer is essential in ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Keep your eyes open. So the second ingredient of the prescription to cure conflict is to ready ourselves against Satan. Number three, we need to revive ourselves with God. We need to revive ourselves in our relationship with God. The first part of verse 8, I think, contains one of the sweetest promises found anywhere in the entire Bible. It says, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Isn't that a great promise? (laughs) Notice the cause and effect here. If we make the effort to draw closer to God, He will respond by drawing near to us. Now it's important that you understand something here. If you're feeling like you're not very close to God right now, it's not God who moved. You're the one who moved. 
God is faithful. He never shifts. He never changes, the Bible says. So basically, James is reminding us that if we want to get closer to God, we got to make the first move. And after all, we're the ones who drifted away in the very first place. So move back. <laughs> Again, the promise is come near to God and He'll come near to you. Okay, well, what does that have to do with conflict <laughs> in our relationships? Everything. Here's what I think. The state of our personal relationship with God has a direct bearing on the state of our horizontal relationships with others. Or we could say it like this, fill in the blanks there in your notes. The better I am spending time alone with God, the better I am at spending time alone, time together with others. The better I am at spending time alone with God, the better I am at spending time together with others. You show me someone who's having constant conflict with other people, and I'll show you someone who's not walking very close with God. It's the truth. When our vertical relationship with God is healthy, our horizontal relationships with others are healthy. Okay, so if we've drifted away from God, then how do we draw close to Him again? How do we revive ourselves with God? Well, it's simple, really. I mean, we just get back to the basics. (laughs) There's no pill you can swallow for this, folks. There's no button you can push. As far as I know, God has never zapped anybody with instant spirituality and maturity. You know, (laughs) The way to draw near to God. (laughs) Nobody likes this word. Discipline. We have to discipline ourselves. I like to call it a long obedience in the same direction. It's being consistent day after day after day with the basics. Spending time in the Bible each and every day. Spending time in prayer each and every day. Spending time with other Christ followers each and every day. Back to the basics. These are the spiritual disciplines and how we draw closer to God. And if we come near to God, He will come near to us. That's His promise. So I guess the question I have for you this morning is this. When will you start these disciplines? When will you begin to draw nearer to God? When? So the third ingredient in the prescription to cure conflict is to revive ourselves with God. Number four is now we're ready to reconcile ourselves to others. Once we've done those first three steps, then comes this step number four, reconcile ourselves others. Read the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9 out loud with me. Would you read this? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Whoa! That's pretty heavy, James. I mean, we'd rather James tell us to turn our gloom to joy and our mourning to dancing, wouldn't we? But not so. Why would James use such heavy words right here? I think it's because of the serious nature of unresolved conflict. 
It's not to be taken lightly. Don't trivialize this. Don't go on with your life pretending that the conflict isn't there. If there is unresolved conflict, then do something about it. Why? Because unresolved conflict is a sin and it is to be taken seriously. We need to grieve, mourn, and wail, James says, about this sin. Now it seems that this reconciliation process is twofold in nature. First, reconciliation needs to be sought with God. I mean, because unresolved conflict is a sin, we need to confess it to God as such, and with a heart of repentance, make a commitment to turn from that conflict and to seek God's cleansing and forgiveness and healing. Let me be straightforward with you. Do you have any unresolved conflict with somebody in your life right now? And have you been ignoring it, pretending that it isn't there? Maybe you've been sweeping it under the rug, perhaps even for years. Isn't it time to address this sin? I mean, haven't you been living with this sin long enough? James' challenge is for us right now, today, this very moment. This is the time for us to grieve and mourn and wail at the sin in our lives. It's time for us to get on our knees before God and confess, God, I've got some unresolved conflict. I've got this bitter spirit and unforgiving attitude. I've been harboring anger and resentment towards someone. God, I confess it to You. Please forgive me and cleanse me and bring healing to this unresolved conflict. That's where it's got to start. Reconciliation needs to be sought first and foremost with God. Second, though, of course, reconciliation needs to be sought with others. Simply put, we need to go to that person with whom we have unresolved conflict and with confession and repentance in our hearts, we need to seek their forgiveness and seek reconciliation with them. If at all possible, we need to take the initiative to reach out to the person face to face. We must not wait for them to come to us. Today's text has been spoken to us, not to them. We're to make the first move. But it's not my fault. I didn't do anything. Garbage! Cease and desist. That is right from the pit of hell and the enemy himself. Conflict's almost never, ever one-sided. So don't fall for Satan's scheme to wait for the other person. We must start the reconciliation process. Let me offer one bit of advice on this process of reconciliation that you might need. For some of us, the conflict may be so great that we cannot resolve it without help. And in this case, we need to reach out to another Christ follower, a pastor, a counselor, a friend, someone who can mediate the process using biblical principles. Often, for instance, that's the case in marriage where the husband and wife cannot seem to work it out between them and they need to have a godly third party step into their conflict and help them to resolve it. Again, the point is, we need to get serious about unresolved conflict. We need to grieve and mourn and wail about it. We need to have the attitude, whatever it takes, God, I'm going to address this. I'm going to take care of it because I know it's a sin. I need to take care of it in my life. And we need to be able to pay the price, whatever that price may be, a full and complete reconciliation if it's at all possible. And so the fourth ingredient, the prescription to cure conflict, is to reconcile ourselves to others. Now, remember at the beginning of today's lesson that I asked you to be thinking about somebody with whom you have unresolved conflict? 
You want to resolve that conflict and ensure it won't happen again? Well, here's the prescription. Resign ourselves to God. Ready ourselves against Satan. Revive ourselves with God. Reconcile ourselves to others. Here's the bottom line. Write it down in your notes. Fill in the blank there. Conflict is cured by selflessness. Remember earlier we said conflict's caused by selfishness. Well, the opposite is also true. Conflict is cured by selflessness. James tells us in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Earlier in verse 6, James wrote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, it's selflessness. That's the cure for conflict. How do I resolve conflict? Today we've taken a closer look at what James teaches us about the cause of and the cure for conflict. Here in James 4 verses 1 through 12. Some good advice here. (laughs) Somehow I think some of us have some business to take care of. May it be so.